Welcome to TKG's Healthcare Insights, where we explore healthcare's critical issues, challenges, and trends with a focus on achieving the quadruple aim of enhancing patient experience, improving population health, reducing costs, and improving the work life of healthcare providers and staff. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome. We're glad to have you listening today. I'm Warren Smedley with the Kinetics Group, and today we will be looking at the role that that a cardio-oncologist plays in the support of cancer patients. Cardio-oncology is a subspecialty area of cancer care that has become increasingly important as the number of long-term cancer survivors continues to go up. Advancements in cancer therapies have tremendously improved the long-term survival of patients. However, some of the treatments can be hard on the heart especially for those individuals who may have other medical conditions that they're dealing with. Today's special guest is a former colleague from the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System, Dr. Carrie Lenneman. Dr. Lenneman is director of the UAB Cardio-Oncology Program at the O'Neill Comprehensive Cancer Center at UAB. Welcome and thank you for being on our podcast today, Dr. Lenneman. Thank you, Warren. Thank you for this opportunity. I look forward to, to chatting. This is a really interesting topic to me. I'm very interested in patients especially long-term survivors uh, of cancer care and how we can make their lives truly better in the long term. Can you kind of give us an idea of what your subspecialty of cardio-oncology does and and what niche it's filling for these long-term survivors? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, cardio-oncology is still a relatively new field, um, sort of began in the early 2000s. Um, and it's, it really arose from the fact that we realized Hey, patients are living longer. Um, cancer has become more of a chronic disease and, and patients are surviving. In general, um, the number of cancer survivors is continuing to increase. And it's one of the largest group of patients who now know how to access the healthcare system. So it's one of the largest group of patients um, that we will interact with in our healthcare system. So it's really important to understand the treatments that a patient may have been exposed to because there are truly long-term cardiovascular effects that may begin to appear 5, 10, 15, or 20 years that will impact their overall health and their ability to have a normal and good uh, quality of life. As we knew, the anthracyclines um, are one of the probably the most common medications that are used for lymphomas, sarcomas, um, breast, and leukemias. And we began to realize in the 1960s that that those treatments had cardiotoxic exposure, increasing the risk of heart failure that was very dose dependent. So that sort of sort of kicked off um, the field of cardio-oncology. But now we know there's a growing variety of even targeted therapies. Well, while they're targeted, they still have off-target effects of the cardiovascular system, such as um, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, anti-VEGF inhibitors. Um, We now know that immune checkpoint inhibitors, all these targeted therapies can, in theory, have um, full effects on not only the on the heart, but on the vascular system. And it is important to know the long-term vascular effects of these medications. Great. Now, you're trained actually as a cardiologist. How do you fit then into the oncology team? That's a great question. So I, like I said, I am a trained cardiologist. I came into cardio-oncology actually through research um, because I was very interested in, in understanding how can we predict better for breast cancer patients 
who will develop um, heart failure after exposure to either anthracyclines or Herceptin. So I sort of fell into this field via the way of research and just love the patient population. And it really is a field where it requires constant communication with their oncologist. And it's truly a collaboration where we will identify patients that might be high risk for developing heart failure and, and devise a strategy on how to best monitor them with more in, increased frequent um, cardiac echoes or biomarkers and optimizing their baseline risk factors such as blood pressure, diabetes, weight, exercise. All those things have important implications for how they will do as they are, go through treatment as well as how they will do in survivorship. Now, you and I worked together when you first came to UAB, probably 2016, 17, somewhere around there. Yeah. And uh, you were the very first cardio-oncologist in the state of Alabama that I know of at that time. So the field has been growing, especially in some of the smaller states like Alabama. Uh, What has happened over the last couple of years? How has this subspecialty grown across the country? Absolutely. It has definitely grown. We've increased awareness not only um, here at UAB, across our um, uh, campus at Birmingham, but uh, I've also had a collaborator at USA in Mobile who um, fell into cardio-oncology by personal interest. Um, And so we as well collaborate um, with patients that are maybe um, in in the southern part of the state so that we are having a better breadth and better coverage of our patients um, in Alabama. So that's, that's been our goal. So to grow this program and with increased awareness, we have other providers outside of UAB that have an interest in this field, which has been great. What kind of patient population do we have? Is it a large patient population? How many patients typically need to have a consult with a cardio-oncologist? Well, I can um, give you some examples. Last week, we saw over 40 patients. Um, eight of those were new, 20 of those were returns. Um, that's with like four half days a week. So, you know, it, it, it's it's a, a busy clinic. We also will um, have increased uh, number of echoes. We also participate in, in reading echocardiograms and doing things like that for our patient population. So it, we, we stay uh, pretty busy, actually, um, which is nice. Of course, ideal would be for a patient with either a known th- a therapy that's known to cause some cardiotoxicity or a patient that uh, has presented with, with some symptoms, uh, latent symptoms. But what are you seeing in patients that are coming to you from like the community? Absolutely. We've made a huge push to have a focus on prevention. So at least um, we, we focus on a lot with our oncologists. But how do you know who's a high risk patient? So we've really um, worked with our oncologists to teach them. Maybe let's let's have a collaboration sooner rather than waiting till they're symptomatic. So patients that have uncontrolled risk factors who are getting cardiotoxic um, treatments, obviously we're seeing those patients to sort of risk stratify and optimize them before a starting treatment, um, but also at the same time minimizing any delays to their treatment. But then obviously when patients present with symptomatic issues, we're, you know, obviously controlling the symptoms, whether it's heart failure, whether it's coronary disease or valvular disease, to sort of get them back on track to make sure that we're not interrupting or creating major delays to their treatment plan. That's one of the biggest focuses in our cardio-oncology program is like cancer patients can't wait. We can't let them see a cardiologist um, two to four weeks later. They have to be seen soon so that they can continue their, their, their plan of care. Are you seeing gaps in knowledge of other physicians out in the community, the primary care? A lot of patients who are long-term survivors are being 
followed by, by their primary care providers, or even, even cardiologists that may be out there may not recognize some of these toxicities. What are you seeing from patients that are coming to you? Yeah, absolutely. There are probably two big areas where, golly, if we could even increase the awareness of two things, I think that would be highly important. One is, in general, we're very good at getting echoes pre-anyone being exposed to an anthracycline. We actually do not do a very good job of getting a post anthracycline kind of baseline echo. And we actually know that one of the biggest predictors of how a patient's going to do as far as their development or probability of developing heart failure is getting that post anthracycline kind of EF assessment. And so making sure that our oncology colleagues, as well as our primary care physicians are like, oh, wait a minute, you've just finished breast cancer treatment in the last several months. Let's get another echo and kind of see where your ejection fraction is. I think that would be probably one of the, one of the most pivotal things for our community to help us catch people early when they may have subclinical cardiac dysfunction related to anthracyclines. Second thing is probably really realizing that cancer patients, you know, even if they're metastatic, they can live 5, 10, 15, you know, many years. I think many of us would be like, oh, okay, well, they're metastatic breast cancer. Yeah, their blood pressure is 160 over 90. That's okay. That's not really okay. We really need to treat... We Cancer is a chronic disease, so we need to be more aggressive in our risk factor prevention for these patients so that they don't have metastatic breast cancer and are fighting it for five or 10 years, but in the meantime, develop an acute heart attack or an acute stroke because we haven't been managing their cholesterol and their lipids and their diabetes well because we've sort of said, well, it doesn't matter. It's metastatic. We don't have to be so tightly controlling their other risk factors. Those are probably my two um, things that I, I think are important for us to close those gaps. You wrote a great article in 2016 with Dr. Sawyer, and uh, in that article, I believe you mentioned that cardiovascular issues are the second leading cause of mortality in cancer patients. Absolutely. Yes, it is. That's still, that statistic still remains true, that cardiovascular disease is the second most common reason people will pass away after cancer. So it is important that we really refine their cardiovascular risk factors so we can minimize that. Now, in your article, you also mentioned that this is now five years ago, but uh, you mentioned that there really were not any structured guidelines for surveillance, for really for care of patients that have these exposures. Has that changed recently or what are you seeing in the area of guidelines? So there are um, an emerging number of guidelines that have come out, but actually still still very recent. Um, in 2020, the European Society of Cardiology put out a guideline in the last six months that have sort of recommendations on how often we should do surveillance for different cardiovascular testing, depending on the treatment that a patient was exposed to, um, as well as the European Society of Medical Oncology has put out some guidelines. I will still say we are there's still not a robust amount of long-term data for like the American College of Cardiology or the American Heart Association. We don't have major guidelines through those two major societies. They are coming, but those societies are highly their their guidelines are highly driven on data, and we just do not have a, a substantial amount of long-term data that is correlated enough clinical trials on cancer survivors to really have hard and fast guidelines. Oh, interesting. What uh, what research needs to be done in that area, do you think? Uh, one of the big things is just um, bigger initiatives to have larger registries and larger prospective studies um, in cancer patients. In general, we think about clinical trials for 
cardiovascular related drugs and therapies, they exclude cancer patients. And then alternatively, on the flip side, a lot of the newer oncology drugs that are coming out, they exclude patients with pre-existing heart failure, pre-existing coronary disease, so forth. So if you think about it, these two populations are, we, we exclude them inherently from the different trials because they're too high risk, but they don't represent what we really take care of in a normal setting of everyday practice. So we need to, um, you know, have not only people who are doing clinical trials and drug companies who are sponsoring clinical trials to say, okay, well, maybe we need to take different arms and and have arms that might represent a true normal population of patients that might live in Alabama or might live all over the U.S. So I think that's part one part. And then obviously just, again, long-term registries with follow-up that are well characterized for cardiovascular outcomes are really needed. And there are, there are growing registries at this point, which is great. Now, you mentioned the anthracyclines and several of the other uh, therapies. Anthracyclines seem to be sort of the number one therapy that causes these toxicities. But also in the literature is mentioned radiation. And a lot of, of course, a lot of breast cancer patients receive, typically receive some form of radiation as a part of their, their therapy. And that is another risk factor there. And that may be long-term late. What are you seeing in that area or what, what can be done in that area? Absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously, our radiation, radiation oncologists have not only worked to realize the cardiovascular impacts, but obviously the technology has improved. I mean, from the 80s and 90s, it's been great improvement. I mean, we do um, CT uh, acquisition so that we can minimize sort of the field of planes of exposing the heart. We do breath holds. So ultimately, I say the technology has sort of improved. When I compare my breast cancer survivors from the 80s or even my, you know, maybe my um, lymphoma patients that had mantle radiation, to their chest, we've had significant improvement in the um, decrease in the cardiovascular outcomes as the the decades have improved, as we've improved our radiation techniques. Um, And then, you know, now the whole new field of proton therapy, um, and that is is being explored. There's ongoing, actually, clinical trials looking at comparing conventional radiation for breast cancer, as well as looking at proton therapy and seeing about um, comparing the cardiac and vascular effects of those two different forms of radiation modality. So, in general, we obviously think proton therapy has a much less uh, risk of cardiovascular impact, but again, long-term data is really what is needed. Uh, you mentioned in your article promising new research using stem cells. Have there been any developments there? So, you know, there was a completion of a study called Seneca that I was involved in using a mesenchymal stem cells um, that were injected into the uh, myocardium percutaneously. That really was a phase one study to say, A, is this safe? Is this possible? Because we know with anthracyclines, especially that anthracycline-induced cardiomyopathy, that it is felt the cardiotoxic effect is because it causes cell death of the cardiac myocytes and how cardiac myocytes in general don't regenerate. And if they do, it's very slowly. So the thought is, was there a role of regeneration, regenerative medicine? And so um, people have looked at different cells. Mesenchymal has been used in this cancer population. And overall, it appeared safe. I'm not sure if it's going to go on to a sort of phase two or phase three study with that. Um, It is still a, a very you know, labor intensive and puts patients at a little bit of increased risk. So I, I think there's a lot, a lot to be determined yet. And I think that we don't know the full history yet of that. So. Okay. A lot of the cancer therapies are shifting from sort of traditional infused therapy to an oral therapy. 
that's great because it's probably more convenient for the patient. We get a lot of positive feedback from the patients about that. However, uh, Dr. Carl May wrote an article in 2014 that talks about how we're shifting the burden of therapy and care to the patient more and more. So where, where the patient used to have to come and sit down in a chair and we as the, the clinical team would make sure they got their therapy correctly at the right time, the right way. Now we're sending them home and it's harder for them to stay on their therapy correctly. My mother-in-law is a 27-year survivor of metastatic breast cancer and uh, she has a hard time managing her medications and taking them correctly. Are you seeing any impact of pushing into the oral area and patients actually taking their medications wrong and then having that impact their uh, cardiotoxicities? I mean, absolutely. You know, for, I think for any of us, it's, it's hard to remember to be 100% compliant. And unfortunately, a lot of these oral chemotherapy meds have to be taken at certain times. They need to be, you know, um, not given with food or so many intervals from the time of, of having a meal. Um, they also have a lot of drug interactions, so it complicates things. We let them take maybe their cholesterol and their blood pressure medicines at this time, but then you can't take your cancer medicine until so many hours lapse. So it becomes a complicated regimen. You know, we, we try to set patients up for success by, you know, giving them a calendar and, and helping them set reminders. But, you know, it's difficult for anyone. So obviously, um, as patients miss multiple doses, there's an increased risk that the therapy is not effective. One of the things I deal a lot with um, are CML patients who are on an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor like, like Gleevec, um or other medications in that tyrosine kinase family. And it is your, your response to that CML is very dependent on how well you're able to be compliant with those medications. And what my, my bigger role for patients who are taking those oral medicines is to let them know about the cardiovascular effects. Cause you're right. They're not coming, they're not interacting with the healthcare system as much because they're not maybe having to come in and get toxicity checks or, or come in for that infusion, but making sure that they know what are the things I need to be on the lookout for. So the patients that are on the tyrosine kinase inhibitors like Spricel or Desatinib or Nalotinib, I make sure that they're aware that those medicines increase the risk of arterial and vascular events. So I really spend some time educating them about what are the signs and symptoms of stroke, heart attack, and blood clots so that they know when they're at home, like, oh my gosh, I am having, you know, facial droop or I'm weak on one side or I'm having, you know, really unusual chest pain or shortness of breath to say, I need to go to the ER. I need to talk to my physician immediately. Don't let this continue to go on. So I think that's probably another important thing is educating our patients about what the typical side effects could be and what they need to be alert to um, when they're taking these oral meds. Because you're right, they're not interacting with the healthcare system as much. Are there opportunities to improve that educational component? You see things that, that we as healthcare systems aren't doing well that we could improve? In, in general, for like... For the example of my CML patients, we have um, collaborated with our oncologist here. Basically, with any patient that's got more than two cardiac risk factors and are going to be on a higher risk um, tyrosine kinase inhibitor like nilotinib or panatinib, they are seeing us in clinic and we really spend a lot of that time about education. Um, so they really understand that these medicines, yes, they work, B, they come with some increased risk. And, and how to be in tune to that. And then we really drill down on, okay, yeah, 
blood pressure control is absolutely essential. We've got to get your diet on track. We've got to get your lipids. We've got to get your A1C. I mean, so we really drill down on a lot of prevention because that's our best our best way to fight the potential risk of cardiovascular events that can happen with these medicines. Are there any digital tools that help patients to sort of stay on task or on track? Great question. Um, I'm sure there are. I'm pro- I have not developed or really delved into the digital like reminder apps. I do know that they're doing a lot with sort of surgical oncology. We've got some nice um, apps that are helping patients remind to hit uh, specific milestones, which are important. But I think there's definitely a role for digital apps and digital communications with our healthcare system. That would be important for sure. And I'll, I'll say definitely with our telemedicine, you know, obviously COVID's been good for some things. I think we've improved our ability to reach out to patients and to monitor and do more remote sort of healthcare providing with the, with the use of telemedicine, which that's... Yeah, it sound, this sounds like a great opportunity to do more with patient navigation or some, some form of navigation where you're actually, you know, helping the patient stay on task. Absolutely. Absolutely. Final question for you. Are there um, uh, some other gaps that you think we as health system administrators, hospital systems, oncology programs, societies should be focused on trying to address to fill these gaps, to prevent exacerbation of problems for patients? Yeah, I do think, um, you know, as we're all pushing to make sure when our patients are finishing up their care in an oncology center is to make sure that they have their cancer care plan. I mean, I think that's a really, it's been a huge push. And I think that really helps summarize the treatment plan for the patients so that they can then know, yes, I got an anthracycline. So yes, getting that, that follow-up echo and then maybe having some yearly surveillance or every other year surveillance, depending on how high risk a patient is, is what is so important. In our prostate cancer patients, making sure they're aware that they may be increased risk of cardiovascular issues because of the alterations in the, the hormones that, that occur and making sure they realize the effects of that interplaying with causing um, you know, elevations in lipids and maybe making them at higher risk for having uncontrolled blood pressure and how important those controlling those risk factors are. So I think our care plans are absolutely essential and probably even need to have a, a more focused sort of drill down on sort of like what are the cardiovascular effects and the cardiac sort of parameters that we need to be hitting. Because I think having a patient able to go with that care plan being like, yes, I was on these therapies and thus controlling these risk factors are so important. And this is why it would be important. I think that's how we help disseminate this information to um, the primary care providers or the healthcare teams once they leave an oncology center. This is really complex. There's a lot of moving parts here. Very complicated to keep the patient healthy, uh, optimizing their outcomes, doing the best that they can. It's very complex. Thank you so much for taking the time to update us on all this. Is there anything else you want to, that you think would be important for uh, your colleagues, especially those who aren't in cardio-oncology to know or to think about? One thing I think that is sort of new and novel is are these immunotherapies, um, immune checkpoint inhibitors, um, 
from a cardiovascular standpoint, we were always so we've been worried and more focused about um, during the first couple of cycles of treatment, looking for myocarditis or inflammation that can occur with that. I think now, um, as we've been using these therapies in patients, we're realizing there are increased risk of development of atherosclerosis. And again, you know, our metastatic melanoma patients who may have received these immune checkpoint inhibitors, they're living very long. Jimmy Carter's like sort of the poster child for it. And so really, we need to focus on making sure that we're being diligent about screening and controlling risk factors. Prevention is key. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lenneman. This has been an outstanding discussion. Appreciate your insights. It's really important for all of us to understand the complexities here so that we can all come together and uh, improve the lives of, of our patients that we work with. Uh, really enjoyed uh, working in my career with you and with UAB and uh, trying to make a difference in patients' lives. Thank you so much for taking the time today. We appreciate you and all you do. Thanks, Warren. I appreciate the opportunity. Great chatting. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, too. Well, that wraps up another week of TKG's Healthcare Insights. Thank you for joining us. We welcome your suggestions, ideas, and requests for podcast topics of interest. Please reach out to us at tkgoncology.com forward slash contact and write Insights Podcast in the subject line. Thank you. Have a safe and healthy day. You have been listening to TKG's Healthcare Insights, a program produced by the TKG Oncology team of the Kinetics Group. TKG Oncology empowers life science companies to effectively engage with health system and payer customers by developing strategies and real-world solutions aimed at impacting the right patient at the right time with the right care. We also work directly with health systems and payers to address the critical issues of our time. We would love to hear from you reach out to us at tkgoncology.com. Thank you for joining us today.